ever after true? I'm more of a chaser, really. Victorious warriors win first and then go to war, while defeated warriors go to war first and then seek to win. Welcome to Chaser After Truth, a Quidditch podcast. I'm your host, Alejo Enriquez. I personally like playing beater the most out of all of the positions. Uh, not that I'm the best at it, necessarily, um, or that I, th- that I think I have more to offer there than elsewhere, but I think one of the things I like most about playing beater is that it's really, there's so much you can learn to get better at it. Um, like it climb not not to not to downplay playing chaser of course or seeker I think that there's a lot to learn there too but just it's kind of almost on another level just how much you control the pace of the game at the beater position uh, how you know depending on everything you're the one who's tying the whole game together as a beater you're the one who you influence the seeking game. You influence the quaffle game. You have to work with your partner against the other beaters. Uh, um, it's a little less true in MLQ now that um, SWATs are legal for chasers, but in general, as a beater, I've always felt that I only have one partner and two opponents, and then and then the rest of my uh, the other team are my prey. You know, because what can you do? You know, there there's more of them than you, and they're running around trying to avoid you. To it's a very empowering feeling. Now, when I uh, coach someone for the first time and I'm explaining uh, whether they're playing beater or not, they, they should understand the concept of the beater position. It's really important to emphasize bludger control. And also that, you know, because for those of you listening who haven't played a lot of real-life Quidditch, on the, in the Harry Potter books, there's only two uh, bludgers, and they're magically in Sorcell to try and t- knock out all of the players. Uh, but since we don't have the budget to magically ensorcel dodgeballs um, with angry spirits, instead we use three dodgeballs on the field. That way one team has what's called bludger control, sometimes called bludger advantage, or I've heard bludger superiority as well. Um, there's probably other names for it too. Um, and that team, both the beaters have a bludger. And so then the other team is short. Either one beater is empty-handed and then one beater has a bludger. Um, and I had someone ask me about this recently about the third bludger rules. If you're ever curious about that, basically third bludger, if one team has both beaters and one team have a bludger, the other team has the right to the third bludger that's on the ground. You can't just keep knocking out that the other beaters over and over with impunity. That's what the third bludger rules are are about. Uh, if you were curious. So when, when I'm explaining how bludger control works, I think one of the most important things to emphasize is that, oh, it's easy to keep bludger control if all you're interested in is is keeping bludger control, basically. Um, if you never throw a bludger, then you will keep you can keep bludger control 100% of the game. Um, but this immediately obvious that if you that's not the point of the bludger. The bludger is not meant to be held on to 100% of the time. It, uh, you know, the, you, you, you can never throw it. You never stop a goal with it. Your team's going to, you know, lose a lot. Um, so it's not a question of, of you know, wh- whether to throw the dodgeball. Of course you, you must throw the dodgeball sometimes. Now it's a question of when, how much, right? That's, and that's, some, to some degree, I think that's philosophical. 
Like, you know, and, and also it can depend on your athletic limitations. If you have beaters with stronger arms, more accurate arms, with more practice uh, throwing, um, you know, then, then it's going to be different. And it also really depends on the matchup. If your beaters are faster than their, beater, their beaters or stronger or any other uh, physical characteristic that's going to be some kind of imbalance, then that can also inform how much you're going to throw the bludger. But basically, when you throw the bludger, there's always a chance you won't get it back, right? Uh, Or rather, I should say, when you have bludger control, every time you throw a bludger, there's a chance you'll lose bludger control. And then when you don't have bludger control, you're looking for that opportunity to get it back, either, either by attacking the other beaters directly or just positioning yourself to where you think you'll be able to pick it up or, you know, taking the one bludger you have and attacking the other team with it, whatever, whatever it takes, right? Um, and I don't know that I have any necessarily any, any deep truths to offer in that. I think a lot of that's matchup, a lot of that's practice, a lot of it's, you know, just getting better over time and, and watching games and caring and being interested in the sport. But one thing I will say is that, uh, when you're setting up your team's practice, it is, I think, really important to practice both ways having bludger control and not having bludger control. Uh, I think that um, getting bludger control is a skill and how you want to do it depends on your matchup, depends on if you have a beater who is, you know, really aggressive and is just going to knock out the, then if you're partnered with that beater, then you have to learn where's a good place to be, to be in cleanup, to to pick up that loose bludger or whatever. you know, if you're you've got your beaters who are just kind of more conservative and just going to be more about positioning, and then that's something you have to think about as well. And you can practice that. All. Whatever you practice, you can get better at. That's really what it comes down to. But you really have to practice both ways. You really have to practice having bludger control, and you have to practice not having bludger control. And some teams, once they have bludger control, will keep those bludgers entirely on defense and not bring them up on offense at all. Um, you know, that, that used to be more common in Southwest. I don't think it's as common anymore, but that, that, that's still a, a, a strategy. Um, when you don't have ledger control, you know, and you, you want to get it, normally you are, right, we'll just try and get it on offense because on offense, the, your chasers can help contribute to the tempo of the game by passing the ball around, being patient, uh, drawing the beaters out until your own beaters can take advantage of it and, knock them out or, or exchange with them and then boom now you have ledger control kind of force the beaters to do two things at once to protect against your beaters and also guard against your quaffle game so if your quaffle game is all the way p- back to where you're not ever doing anything they don't have to worry about you you have to force them to you have to force a mismatch right in a lot of sports really in, in any team sport ultimately uh a lot of the time the strategy comes down to either finding the opportunity to um, to do a double team, that is to say to do a, like a two-on-one, or to have a one-on-one and just win, to be superior, faster, stronger, whatever, than the one person whose responsibility is to take you out of the game. So a really good example of this comes from um, American football. Um, where there's what's called the, the read option. And so what the read option is, it's, um, and this game became really popular in college, 
uh, college football. It's come into the NFL. It's now now defenders are kind of aware of it. As schemes are kind of more set up for it. But if you look at like Robert Griffin the third when he uh, the quarterback when he came into the league he completely decimated teams because he was running a read option in a way that that hadn't been done before. So the read option is basically you're forcing someone to be wrong. And there's similar plays in basketball and, and soccer and so forth. But basically you when you when, when the quarterback has the ball and the defender, there's like a free defender, unmarked defender who's kind of coming after him. But if that defender uh, charges the the quarterback just to commit his momentum to going after the quarterback, then there's a designated person who's going to be open and is gonna he's gonna pass to that person. But if the defender's like, well, okay, I won't charge. I'll just guard that guy. Now the quarterback has zero people charging him and is totally free uh, to run it himself or or make another pass. And so basically, the quarterback and I guess it would be the running back, but it could be someone else are are two on oneing this one defender. They're making whatever choice he makes the wrong choice. So I got a little off topic there. Well, not really. I, I'm kind of making a roundabout point. But basically, uh, if the the beaters are trying to get bludger control back on offense, and they the opposing beaters only have to worry about those beaters, it's so much harder to 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 steal bludger control because it's a one-on-one situation or a two-on-two situation but basically it's beaters versus beaters what you need to do is have your qualified players be a threat to score such that they draw the attention of one of the beaters or both of them potentially and then your own beaters have an opportunity to make a play so really it comes down to this sort of two-on-one now of course you might say well of course there's also qualified defenders on the field as well so it's really a two-on-two Right, and so that's part of where the strategy really depends on on having someone either having a, a a clean, strong passing game that can get around people because you normally most teams have at least one player at the hoops, which means that there's you're going to have one of your offensive players unmarked, making good use of them, uh, or this ability to drive or get past or just be faster or stronger than the defenders. And so, whatever you have, you have to take advantage of it and whatever you don't have you can train to get it but these qualified players have to force the beaters to respect their ability to score in such a way that that if the beaters uh, completely zone out and ignore you and you just and you score then even if you uh even if you don't get back budget control at least you've scored and even if you give up a fast break on the on the way back at least the game is level so this idea of having your beaters practice with and without bludger control so they know what to do in all the different situations is really key and so you know that never just have your players only play on offense or only play on defense never have your players play with or without bludger control and so for those and, and for those of you who are saying well but we keep our bludgers back on defense all the time uh, that's uh, you know uh, uh, you know when we have bludger control we never bring up both bludgers that's nice you're now exposed to teams that do do that so for example I don't know if they still do this but Mizzou when they have bludger control I watched them again I watched them do this against several teams they had a very specific pattern where they would bring up both bludgers and make a specific series of beats on offense that completely tore teams apart that weren't ready for it and weren't able to adapt to it. So 
even if you're saying to yourself, no, I don't, you know, we're never going to bring our bludgers up on offense, you still need to train your own beaters on defense when they don't have bludger control how to react to this kind of threat, and especially what your empty-handed beaters should be doing. Because when I watched this, I saw that the empty-handed beaters against the Mizzou offense, beater offense, often didn't really know what to do. They weren't sure like where they should be or how they should react, or and and just just a lack of practice, a lack of having practice against that specific kind of. And, and not to spoil all of Mizzou's secrets, I'm sure you can watch it on game film for yourself if you care. Um, but basically, they'd have one beater come up the straight, um, come midway with the, the the quaffle on offense, and the other beater would come up the side, and they would make a very specific pattern that uh, if you weren't ready for it, it could mess up your defense. And so that's something that you want to be able to practice against. So try different offensive formations with your beaters, even if it's not you don't feel comfortable with having your own players do that in a game. Just give your defense different looks. Otherwise, you're vulnerable to it. And when you see, whenever you see something for the first time, it's not going to go right. So it would be better to see it for the first time in practice than in a game where you suddenly give up some goals because you have to adjust on the fly. This is the drill this of the week. This is the drill of the week. Drill of the week. You know where I'm going with this. So this is ideally, the ideal personnel number is seven for this. Uh, you can do it with six. You can kind of do it with five. It kind of sucks. Uh, you could go eight or more, but it's not necessary. So this is a beater coordination drill, and what we do when we, in Victoria Quidditch when we used to run this drill, we would have normally seven people. So you'd have a keeper and two beaters on defense, and you'd have two chasers and two beaters on offense. And the trick is normally, at least for a while, we would practice it um, with, um, with bl uh, bludger control almost always on defense. We would... Sometimes try with bludgers on control on offense, um, just to you know, try and, and see different looks and so forth. But um, a lot of the time we focused on, all right, when we have bludger control, we'll use it. We'll give it up to, to save the goal. And then we'll get bludger control back on every on every time we're on offense. That's kind of how we we played it. We kind of play a high turnover version of Quidditch. So if you're not as interested in that, then you can run more um of one bludger on on uh one bludger on defense more frequently but basically what your goal is to do is just have your beaters run their normal defense and offense to try and get bludger control to try and take bludger control away and then i'll try and keep bludger control while also preventing the score the two chasers are uh your both your scoring threats and the keeper obviously can block kind of like long range ridiculous shots that you would never take in the real game but otherwise, is you know, is it's going to be hard for one keeper to stop again, stop two chasers from scoring. And so, those chasers have to feel empowered that yes, I'm a scoring threat. If I charge the hoops, I might be able to score, or I definitely should be able to see my pass and make that pass and score. But part of it is okay. Well, I have to wait for those beaters to get engaged and to be otherwise get my own beaters to work together. And then one last part of this is that if your beaters go up on the first attack and they get knocked out, you have to kind of make a snap judgment. Can I score and we'll give them a fast break, but at least we're kind of, we've evened it out. Or should I try and play keep away with my chaser partner and we'll just wait for them to tag back in and try and make something happen after that. So And, and that's all stuff you can talk through during and after 
each set. And this is, again, a, a set practice. So you, you run it until there's a score or turnover, then you stop talking about it a little bit, but then mostly keep going on to the next set. And the other really important thing is to mix up your beaters. Do not always have the same beaters on defense and the same beaters on offense. Unless you're actually planning on making those substitutions and platooning your, your beaters so that you always have the same beaters on offense and defense, which basically almost no one does in Quidditch um, because subbing is, is can be, you know, not all, you don't always have opportunities to sub between sets. Unless you're going to do that, do not just have your beaters only on offense. You always rotate, rotate your beater partners, rotate where the beaters are on offense and defense. And then, of course, your chasers probably should rotate too, but it's a little less, a little less essential. Um, you know, I guess it depends on how many chasers you have. I'm used to small practices. So this is a great practice to do with your, and if you have a large team where you have, you know, for example, six, eight, ten beaters, you could run this four at a time and have the other beaters uh, watching, discussing, planning, uh, just borrow a couple chasers to, to, to work the ball around and then have your other chasers do chasery things. Uh, and then as you've practiced this, you know, uh, to just kind of get this cohesion, get these ideas, help spread your ideology of how you want your, your philosophy of your team to work, this is a good way to get your beaters all on the same page with each other and to get them used to that confrontation with other beaters while still keeping one eye on maybe what's happening with the Quaffle game. Are you a seeker? A seeker after truth? I'm more of a chaser, really. So yeah, that's uh, trying to bring a little bit of ideas of how to run your Quidditch practice. Um, I've, I have a lot of experience with small practices, and uh, especially as teams are restarting, they're often going to have small practice. A small practice is still a good practice. I mean, when you get to just to, to two, three, four people, it can be tough, but... Even seven people is really a perfect number for certain really kind of essential key practicing that to help build your team up to its full strength. Um, you know, so that's just uh, some ideas for you for your practices. So uh, hopefully this is a good drill. Uh, feel free to let me know on Twitter at how to play quid if you like this drill or hate this drill, uh, or maybe pick a fight with someone else in my mentions about whether or not you like this drill. And uh, feel free to share the podcast with other people and uh, share your own ideas. Um, again, the website for this uh, podcast is cat.howtoplayquidditch.org for Chaser After Truth. I'm your host, Alejo Enriquez, and thanks for listening. Uh, catch you again next time.